On February 18, 1952, a, a call went into the Chatham Harbor Coast Guard Station. There was a boat that was stranded off the coast of the Cape, uh, Cape Cod. Uh, actually, it was a tanker called the SS Pendleton. The Pendleton had split in two. I mean, it was an awful, awful storm. Um, having lived in New England, actually on the coast for a little while, I've seen just firsthand how big these, these waves could be. As a matter of fact, the waves then were about 60 to 70 feet high. causing I mean, it was so severe that it caused a tanker to rip in two. There were 41 crew members on board. Uh, as the boat split in two, eight members of the crew were stranded and went immediately down to their death as the one half of the boat sank. The other half of the boat had fortunately come up upon a sandbar, but it was being beaten as these now 34 crew members, uh, or excuse me, 33 crew members were there wanting to know what's going to happen. All communications had been severed. They had managed to get uh, a call out right before there, and the, the Coast Guard had decided to send a boat, a rescue crew, to get um, these stranded, um, this, this stranded crew. But it was a suicide mission. Uh, one man got on the boat, and it was a 36-foot boat that had a capacity for 12 men. And his uh, crew members, they were young, but they decided to, to go out. And first thing they had to do was come out of the Cape and hit the Chatham Bar, which was this, uh, this series of shifting sh- shoals that were there. And with the, the waves coming in, I mean, it was, it was perilous. Some 3,000 shipwrecks had happened across the Cape over the centuries, and so this was sure and certain death for all that were involved. But they decided to, bru- to, to brave it, and as they came across of it, they actually started singing the hymn, Rock of Ages. They were trying to find comfort as they, were, they knew that they could be facing death. And as they hit the shoals and they come up over the, the waves, and the waves are just, one wave just comes and crashes in, causing them to have, lose all communication. They lose their compass. Matter of fact, the, the windshield of the boat shatters and glasses spraying everywhere. These guys thought they were going to die, and then they miraculously pass through it, and the waves are still coming and creeping in. But now they are, in essence, kind of not, not crippled, but they have no means of guidance whatsoever. So they, they have to try to figure out where the, the Pendleton is, uh, and they finally get to the, the Pendleton, and they see it's a ghost ship. Uh, they don't see anybody on board until they look up, and they can see one man. And after that, they see several others, and they realize then that the boat that they brought is going to be insufficient to take all of these surviving crew members. The boat had a capacity of 12, but they decide together that we're going to either live together or die together. So they, they decide to let all of the crew come on board. One man ended up falling off the boat before he could even get to them, and he ended up dying as he got the wave crashed him into uh, the boat, killing him instantly. So these other men are, are making their way down. They get on the boat, hoping it doesn't sink. And they now they have to go back through everything that they just came through to get back to safety, safety uh, it, it, close to Chatham or in the Cape, Cape Cod. And miraculously, they got through. All three cr- crew members were given the uh, gold medal of res- for rescue. Um, it was one of the most heroic acts in Coast Guard history. It's just a harrowing tale. Matter of fact, they made a movie of it called The Finest Hours that just came out in 2016, and it's a great, great film. But what really struck me about that is what if they would have stayed back? I mean, though they had been stranded on that other side of the boat, they, they, that boat was shifting underneath them. It was just a matter of time before that thing went down. But if they wouldn't have gone out there... These all men would have died. Think about how many families would have been affected, how many children would have not had their dads come home. 
Think about how they would have had to find money and, and just their employment. I mean, the families have been saved of all of these different men because of the actions of those who decided to go out. You know, as I, we've come to the end of James, James has taught us a lot. He's taught us about controlling our tongues. He's taught us about how to treat other people. He's taught us about what true faith and action looks like. He, he taught, he, he's taught us about how to respond to suffering. I mean, there are so many different subjects we have covered within these five chapters. It's been a pretty amazing book. Now we've come to the very conclusion of this phenomenal teaching that God has for us. And we see that James ends with these two verses that seems almost as if a a very abrupt or strange ending, but it's really not. Because at the end of the day, God is about saving souls and bringing glory to his name. And James understood how much suffering these people had gone through, that some were tempted to give in and give up. And we've heard about this. Remember, they had been, uh, this letter was written to those who had, had to have, they had to flee their home because of persecution that had developed. Some of us in this church know what it's like to flee your homeland, to be away from everyone, to have the loss of familiarity, to have the loss of family, the loss of reputation, the loss of income, business, prestige, just all of the different things that make home home and, and, and give us, uh, in essence, meaning and direction and, and giving us stability in life. And now they're in a foreign land. Many of them are working for bosses that were taking advantage of them. Even in the church, they're frustrated because they see hypocrisy going on. They see the leaders treating those with money better than themselves. And many of these leaders had been those who were abusing the very, uh, very people that had had to flee. And so they, in essence, want to give up. They said, I don't want to do this anymore. If this is the gospel, I don't want it. I don't want to follow God if this is what it means. I'm suffering. You have no idea what I've been through. And then I go to church, and then they treat me this way. I don't want to do it anymore, and they leave. Now, I think many of us can testify of of feeling that way ourselves or knowing a person that has left the faith behind or departed from God and, and turned off, turned away because of some type of frustration. They have wandered from the truth. And James writes and says, no, 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 I want you to go out and get those people. I want you to be a part of God's search and rescue team." to bring them back because you don't know and don't really understand what this means if they flee. It's not just someone leaving the church. This is someone that's putting their soul in jeopardy from a human perspective. So today I want us to, to look in to see how we can be a part of God's search and rescue team, what that means for each one of us, how we can apply this truth to our lives, how God wants to use this to challenge us to be aware and to reach out to those that have left the fellowship. Because God cares about them, and he wants us. He's drafting us into his search and rescue team to reach those who are dangerously and perilously close to death. Let's take a moment in time to pray, to ask God to bless our, our time together. Heavenly Father, we come before you once again knowing that you are God and we are not that there are so many truths within your word that overwhelm us, that strike us to the heart, that jar us out of our comfort and our selfishness. And they are your wake-up call to rally and rouse us to go out and touch and speak to those 
who are upon the shoals of life being shipwrecked because of being led astray or veering off course or simply departing from you. And Lord, please give us the courage to know and understand and how to apply these truths to our lives. Help us to be a part of your search and rescue team, experiencing the joy of what it means to see a a sinner returned to right relationship with you. So be with us, speak to us by your spirit, and awaken our hearts and our minds to receive the truth that we are about to read and study. We pray your blessing on us now, in Jesus' name, amen. So let's jump right in into these two very amazing and phenomenal verses. See, James ends with a rescue call to rescue the wayward. That's the first point that I want you to write down in your notes, to rescue the wayward. That's how he's ending this book. Rescue the wayward. Now notice what he starts off with in verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you... He's not referring to those who don't know Jesus. He's referring to people that used to fellowship with us. He says, if anyone among you... So he's saying to brothers, part of the church, part of the family of God. If you know of anyone among you who had been a part of the fellowship and had left trying to follow Jesus, then I want you to go out. I want you to rescue them. Now, God wants us to to reach out and go after those who are lost, that's for sure. But here, he's talking about those who had been a part of the the fellowship and understood and at least heard the message of who Jesus is. And he says, anyone among you wanders from the truth. These are people who have departed from the faith. Departed from the faith. The The truth is the faith of Jesus Christ, or the truth in Jesus Christ. That's what he says, have wandered from the truth. The truth here is referring to the gospel of Jesus. And remember, gospel is a very all-inclusive term. When we hear gospel, we think of Jesus coming to, to save sinners, which is true, but we often leave off at the part where a person trusts in Christ. The entire gospel is the idea of following Christ as well. That is part of it. it it's not just pray the prayer and you're done. It's continued understanding of following following Jesus. And it's the idea of the path. We've, we've talked about this before, that early on in the book of Acts, Christianity was called the way. The way, meaning that there was a way of walking, a way of living, a way of conducting one's life. And what we have often done in our modern era, has uh, we have relegated and, and removed what really following Jesus is, and we put it as a prayer to be prayed, a commitment, and that's it. And that is not what we see within Scripture. There is the idea of progressing, of putting to death one's sin, and of following Jesus with the entirety of one's life. And these are people that have departed from that way, have wandered off of that path. He says that those who have departed from the faith, and in essence, denied the Lord by their lifestyle. They're not just talking about an intellectual movement here, but these are, they're saying that I'm not going to follow Jesus, I'm not going to do what God wants me to do any longer. They have departed from the faith and they've denied the Lord with their lifestyle. And that's a pretty amazing thing, a pretty hard truth to really comprehend. Now, and what does that mean? How do they deny the Lord with their lifestyle? And this word wanders means to be led away from the truth, to lead into error, to deceive. The word is passive. In other words, they were lured away. See, the devil wants to rem- it really attacks Christians a lot. He doesn't need to do a lot to unbelievers because unbelievers are blinded. 
Uh, we actually read that in Corinthians, that unbelievers are blinded from, res- from seeing and understanding the truth of who Jesus is. He's already got them. So he wants to get to God, and how does he get to God? He can't get to God on his own, so he goes and attacks his people, his children. So he, wants to, he attacks those within church. Uh, I shared before about a man who used to go to our fellowship and he, uh, he, he stopped coming to the fellowship, and I said, why, you know, we sat down, we had lunch, and I said, what's going on? What, you know, why, what's happening in your life? Why have you, you know, kind of left? And he said, because when I followed Jesus, my life got hard. Satan came against me, and he recognized that it was Satan. And he said, but when I, when I stopped going to church, Satan stopped messing with me. So rather than fight the battle, he said, I'd rather, in essence, live in ignorance and be in captivity to the evil one than fight and have all of these difficulties in my life. That was very, very sad to me. This is an individual that said, I I don't want to do this anymore. I want to do what I want to do because following Jesus is hard. Following Jesus is hard. It's not easy. Because of all the, that's why Jesus talks about taking up your cross and dying and that you're going to suffer. See, he's calling us to rescue the wayward for those who who have doubted, who are struggling, who have turned away. Now, some people might come to me, and and if you're familiar with theology and the Scripture, you might say, well, these are people that were really never saved to begin with. That's why they swerved from the truth. That could be true. Uh, And we see Jesus talking about many different responses to the gospel that occur in our lives. He talks about this when he talks about a sower going forth with seed to sow, and some falls along the path, and the birds kind of take it away, and some falls among the thorns, and and it grows up, and the thorns choke it, and there's those that fall among the rocks, and it never can really take root, and there's that that falls among good soil. And Jesus explains that these are all different responses to the gospel, that Satan takes away the word once it's sown in some people's hearts. And there's others that it grows up and it, and it gets choked by the cares and things of this world and money and all the different things that happen. And it's others that really has no root within itself. And when persecution comes, it dies. And there are those that it really falls in their heart that they continue to, to follow and they, they, they will produce fruit. And now we might say, well, they are those that never really took root. Here's the problem with that. You don't know what's going on in their heart. See, God is not calling us to make heart judgments. He's, he's calling us to evaluate behavior and see where they're at. And they proclaim Jesus, but we, we can't say whether they're saved or whether they're not. They're acting like an unbeliever, but God is calling us to go out anyway, not to just leave them on the shoals or on that sandbar, because he's saying that there is so much at stake. We have to go out and reach them. But these are people that are saying, you know what? I don't want to follow anymore. And they've been led astray by poor teaching. Here's what I, what I mean by that. Um, we had someone in our small group that had this question that's really kind of new to Christ and, and what it means to follow Jesus. And they said, I've, always, I've not followed God for several years, and I'm trying to understand what it means to follow God. And I, I want to understand why God created so many false religions. Why did he create so many false religions? Why couldn't he just have one way? And I said, it's not that God created false religions. It's not that at all. Matter of fact, it's the complete opposite. God created one faith. It's Satan that created false religions. Why? To distract people. It's like this. I, I saw a movie several years ago. And in the film, uh, it was about an art thief. And he was uh, very, very articulate and very, very good at stealing. He would steal the, the pieces of art right underneath the authorities' noses. And he, he stole one piece, and then uh, they knew he was going to steal another piece. So they kind of set up this sting where they had all their security ready to go. They had cameras set up all over the museum, uh, the, art, the art place where he was coming in. And, and he walks in. He puts on this overcoat, looks at the camera, 
knows that everybody knows he's there. He's got a, a briefcase in his hand, and then he puts on a bowler hat. And he starts walking in the museum, and he puts down a case. Well, another man comes dressed in the exact same thing and picks it up. And now the place is packed. There are so many people that are around. The authorities are going, okay, wait, the case is going over this way now. And then another man with a bowler hat comes around. And another man. The next thing you know, there's another bowler hat. All these guys are walking back and forth in the museum, and the authorities can't get and figure out which one is which. And it's meant to distract them. See, that's what Satan has done. He's enabled all these different religions to occur. To, 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 in other words, distract from the true one. And that's what happened, is that this guy was dis- distracting so he could get away. And Satan has created all these different false religions and all of these different things to confuse believers, or, or, or confuse people so they don't believe the true light and light of who Jesus is. That's what Satan wants to do. And so some people get so caught up and they, they can't handle it, so they just said they, they grasp onto many things, something that would either condemn or allow them to do what they already want to do. And so these individuals are those who are going off and denying the Lord by their lifestyle. They have turned from the way of truth. And it's, it's really hard to see that happen in their lives. I mean, you see, actually, Paul talk about this and how, how quickly it can happen to a person. Um, this isn't always a person that's on the edge. This can even be leaders. God tries to get, I mean, God, excuse me, Satan wants to get to the leaders of God's church. Uh, one of the most interesting characters in all of Scripture is a guy named Demas. He's mentioned in the book of Philemon, chapter 1, verse 24, and he's also mentioned in the book of Colossians. And Paul writes about this guy. He's one of his traveling companions. He's a co-worker in the gospel. And so early on in Paul's ministry, he's friends with him. And they're partnering together. But then, the book of Second Timothy, Paul writes something that's quite uh, jarring. In Second Timothy 2, 16 through 18, he says this. But of, uh, actually, not, excuse me. Second Timothy 4, 10. He says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. He's saying he's in love with this present world, that he left behind the gospel. He wanted to, do, he wanted to pursue his own sinful desires. He's denied the faith with his life, not just intellectually. But you see, I find that not when a person denies the, the faith with their life, it's because someone, they've received some type of false teaching that has led their life astray. See, usually, if you have bad doctrine, that leads to bad behavior. If you have good doctrine, that should lead to good behavior. And so when you hear false teaching, you you understand in this case, what James is talking about, a person who's been lured away. They have believed some type of false teaching about who Jesus is or what it means to follow him. And we have to guard. This is why doctrine is important. It's not just something that we hear about that's supposed to put you to sleep. It's to help you live rightly. It's showing you the steps on how to live. That's what doctrine really is. How to believe. How to order our lives. How to understand how the world works. I've seen this happen too many times. Matter of fact, I'm, I'm dealing with a situation uh, just recently where uh, a, a person who's come to me that's been caught in all kinds of gross sin. And as I was uh, in thinking about the person, and I, I was uh, uh, going through just their background, their history, and I realized that they had come from a certain type of theological background. And I've seen this happen with one certain denomination, and I'm not going to tell you what it is, but one certain denomination that I've seen several people come out of it, and they look like they, they know who Jesus is, but they, as soon as they, they struggle with a certain sin, and they, they don't admit, first of all, that they are struggling. Uh, they don't admit that at all. And then when they get caught in it, what they do is they go to the pastor, and the pastor then prays for them, and then they are, quote-unquote, delivered, 
And then it's like a get-out-of-jail-free card. And then it, they don't understand you have to put to death your sinful nature. Yes, God does free us from the power of sin, but he doesn't free us from the presence of sin. We have to and understand how to put to death our sinful nature and our sinful desires, our sinful inclinations. There are several of you in this room that know exactly what I'm talking about. For those that have struggled with alcoholism or drug addiction or sex addiction, whatever it might be, I mean, it, it can find many different outlets but we have to learn to put that to death in our lives and check ourselves, make sure that we're not one of those wanderers. To be honest about our struggles, to be honest about the issues that we face and, and say, are we believing right things? See, this is why, by the way, when I hear some of you have come to me and they said, well, I'm a real big fan of so-and-so TV preacher. And I, I roll my head because that is false. They're teaching false doctrine. They are. And that changes behavior and how you live and what you go after. That's why doctrine is so monumentally important. It's not for division purposes. Some people say, well, it divides. But it also unites you under an umbrella of truth and gives you right direction on how to live and follow the way God wants you to live. Because remember, Satan wants to get you off, even by a degree. In my house, I have this mudroom where, you, you know, for those that aren't familiar with what a mudroom is, it's where you come in, take off your jacket, your coat, your shoes, and you hang them up. And uh, I wanted to do that pallet wood idea, you know, putting up like pallet boards. And so I started doing this. And last night I was doing it, and I, I, I put up a couple rows, and I looked at it, and I'm like, something's not right. It's the line's off. And I put the, the level on it, and it's, it's imbalanced. And I'm like, nuts. i got to strip all these pieces off and get back to the bottom layer where it went off. And I see that there was one small piece that I put that was just slightly lower than the other. That when I, it caused the other boards to go down. It was just one small thing, but it caused the entire thing, as it was built over time, to go off monumentally. See, when we have false doctrine that comes into our life, it sets us off balance. Now, it may not seem like a big deal at first, but when you continue to build your life on that false doctrine, your life becomes more out of balance and goes in a much worse direction. So we have to understand, we have to strip it back and go, where did it go wrong? Where did, what did I believe? Where was I led astray? What did I, I need to understand? What do I need to rethink? What do I need to correct in my life? And that's what the scripture is talking about here, that these people had been led astray. They didn't do that on their own, but they'd chosen or had been deceived and believed something that was false. And we have to help correct that. Now, let me, let me tell you right now, if you do that, if we, if we take this call to heart and to seek to, to uh, follow or uh, take up this challenge that James has for us, it's going to be hard work. You have to recognize this is hard work. This is not going to be easy. Uh, and this is where many people just say, hey, let them go their own way. They quote Henry David Thoreau, to each his own. And they let them just go off. It's not my problem. Let me tell you, it is ours. This is hard work. This isn't going to be easy, but this is what God's calling us to do. Notice here, verse 19, and someone brings him back. The wording here indicates that it's the rescuer who helps bring them back to the path. How? You know, the text doesn't say. Perhaps intentionally so that all methods could be employed. And I would venture to say that it's, it's reasoning with the person, using scripture and spirit wisdom to speak to them, and having conversation and going back and forth. This is similar to what Peter wrote about in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Peter says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness 
and respect. Fascinating word there for the defense is the word, Greek word apologia. Uh, we get the term or our subject apologetics. Uh, and what it means is offering an apology, not as if something you've done wrong, but the idea is a defense of your faith giving an explanation on why you want to follow Jesus. And here, you're explaining to a person perhaps why they've doubted, why they've turned away, and you've listened to their excuses. And you need to be able to, to prepare your own heart to know and understand the reasons why you are following and why you believe that Jesus is the Christ. And I've heard some people say, well, I don't reason with them. I just expect God to change them. Well, that's not what God has called. God says you've got to give a reason. You've got to engage in this conversation with them. It is hard work for you to do and for us to do. We have to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. It's a difficult calling, but one that we must take seriously. We need to know not only what we believe. And do you know what you believe? Let me ask you that right now. What do you believe? And don't say, do not say whatever Travis says. Okay? Don't say that. Because when you stand before glory, you can't do that. What do you believe about God? What do you believe about man? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about the Holy Spirit? What do you believe about salvation? These are monumentally important things. Pastor and theologian A.W. Tozer once said that what I believe about God is the most important thing about me because it gives direction to the entire fabric of your life. What do you believe? Now let me ask you this. Why do you believe it? Can you back it up? Can you back that up? And I hear, I hear some Christians say, well, you know, that group believes this. That's what they've always been taught. Why do you believe what you believe? Can you give a reason for why you believe Jesus is the Christ? Is it just because of what it makes, he makes you feel good or it's just how you can live your life and it's very pragmatic or you believe that he's the God of the universe? It's just a few weeks ago I referred to you of a story of a man who came to a pastor by the name of Larry Osborne and he was lamenting over the fact that he'd been passed over for a promotion. And he said, why do I follow God like this if, if God's not going to bless me this way? And Osborne rebuked him. He goes, I thought you followed God because he's the God of the universe, not because he was giving you career advancement. Think about that. Why are you going to God? What are you trying to, are you trying to get something out of him? Or do you realize and recognize that he is God? So it's hard work to talk to people like this, to, to share and understand. We have to understand what we believe and why we believe it. We need not write them off. Instead, we are to follow the words in Jude chapter 1, verse 17 through 23. This is an amazing little book, by the way. And this is an amazing uh, passage here. He says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, in other words, grow in godliness, discipline yourself for the sake of godliness, reach after, seek God, order your life to seek God, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now, this part I really want you to, excuse me, pay attention to. And have mercy on those who doubt. Meaning that there are going to be those around us that doubt. We have to be merciful to them. And talk to them and, and reason with them and come alongside them. Snatching them, save others by snatching them out of the fire. This is the same picture that James is talking about. That they are so close to death. Eternal destruction. We don't even realize it. 
To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Stained by the flesh. See, those whose doubt caused them to stray were to rescue them, snatch them from the fire because they are headed to hell. And to others were to show them mercy, but with fear because their lives were stained with sin, which leads to their destruction. It is hard work to talk to someone, to plead with them, and to pray for them. But we have to understand that if we are believers, then this is our responsibility. We have to understand that it's not the responsibility of the pastor or the elder's job alone, but this is for every single believer, and we have to accept our responsibility. This is hard work. This is not, that's why he says, if anyone among you, not the elders, not the pastor, you, 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 you. Well, I don't know. I'm not qualified. You are qualified if you are a follower of Jesus. He has called you to do this, to speak to those who have gone astray. We always want to pass the buck and say, oh, it's the pastor's job. Oh, pastor, so-and-so, have you talked to him? I don't know what to say. Well, go try it. You're going to find it out. You're never going to know it completely. You're never going to be prepared completely, which is why we have to rely on the Spirit of God. It's our responsibility. But at the same time, we also have to acknowledge our susceptibility. Acknowledge our susceptibility. And what I mean by that is this. Uh, Paul actually talks about this in the book of Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So again, here, here's the manner in which we do it. We're to be gentle, not condemnatory, but gently coming alongside them. It's power under control. It's what, um, what's what we're doing, being gentle. But keep watching yourself, lest you yourself be tempted. That's why Jude says, be careful of that garment that's been stained by the flesh, because it can affect you, because it could pull you down with it. And I've heard some people say, well, I don't, I don't get tempted in that way. And you may not. But more often than not, when I hear people say that, it's, it's because they're being lazy and they're not understanding the capacity of sin that each one of us has. As a matter of fact, I heard a guy call into a Moody Radio one time and he goes, I haven't sinned in years. Uh, he, he advocated a certain theology that said he was delivered from sinning. Uh, and and I'm, I wanted to be the radio host and go, well, you're sinning right now because you're lying. Um, and there's some people that think that, that, oh, I'm not going to, I can go through that. I'm spiritual enough that it's not going to affect me. As again, as my grandfather has said, quite honestly, he, he, the term he used was hogwash. It's, it's not true. You have to understand the capacity that each one of us has to sin, to know your dent of disobedience and your proclivity. So you have to be careful and taking watch over yourself. Am I being tempted? Am I being wooed? Is there a behavior affecting my own and be careful and cautious, because we are susceptible to all kinds of sin. And when I hear people say, then I, I'm not susceptible, then it, you are believing a false teaching. And again, that's going to set you off, and it's going to affect your behavior. And I've seen this happen to too many Christians. So we have to understand this and apply this truth into our lives, accept our susceptibility, and also realize there is a way to rescue. That's the next point I want you to write down, or recognize there is a way, uh, the way to rescue. How do we go about this? How do we go about this? And now again, the Bible doesn't lay this out for us. I'm going to lay out for you some things that I have found, just a couple of truths. There are many ways that you can approach it, but this is the one that I find that many Christians don't do. Uh, first of all, it involves usually a painful confrontation, and this is where we're not good. There are many of us within this, this, this uh, church and in, in our lives, we do not like confrontation at all. Confrontation's hard. I don't like confrontation. Some people really try to avoid it at all costs, but usually when you avoid it, it makes things worse. You have to be able to deal with it. 
and how you go about it. And you got to talk to this person. And this is what you don't do, all right? You don't send them just a Facebook message or make a Facebook post about their issue, hoping that they will see it. I don't know how many people do that. And some of you have said, I've had that happen, where so-and-so has posted a thing online, and, and I knew it was aimed at me. Right? It's, it's called passive-aggressive. It's because you don't have the guts to actually have a conversation with them, that you have to post it online, and then you're trying to get at them. You're being snarky. You need to have a conversation. And it's going to be painful. And you need to sit down and you do it in love. This is where we call speaking the truth in love. And some would say, well, I don't feel like I can do this. Because either of sin in my past, issues that I have done, here's how you go about it. You say to them, hey, can we have a time together? Um, just sit down. Can we talk? And, and you talk and you listen. Ask them about their life. And you listen, truly listen about what they're going through, how they struggle, how, what's going on in their life. And then when the time comes, you, you have to bring it up. Hey, I've noticed some things that's going on. And I, and I know I've had issues in my own life, and I've had struggles with this in my own life or dealt with it. You admit your own issues, your own guilt. Because some people say, hey, you know, I, I've made so many poor choices. How can I talk to someone else? Because you're a new creation in Christ. That's why. And God's called you to do it. Now, you don't come with arrogance. You come alongside and you say, hey, um, I've been working on this issue in my life. And you admit it. And you tell them, I'm working on it. God's working on me. And I see this within you. And I'm talking to you now not to condemn you because I love you. Because seriously, if you love someone, you're going to tell them, right? I mean, why do we think we love them we don't tell them? You know, I remember hearing uh, uh, the, the magicians, Penn and Teller. Um, and uh, it's, which is the tall one? Is that Penn? Penn is a big one. And he, he's a huge atheist, huge atheist. And he was approached by a woman after one of his performances, actually a guy who gave him a Bible and shared Jesus with him. And he said he respectfully took it and he listened to it. And he, he, he rejects the message, but he said, I respect him. Why? Because you, if you believe that I'm really going to hell... And then you should tell me about it so I might avoid it. He goes, it's like if I'm standing in front of a bus and you don't run and try to push me away. He says, how much do you have to hate a person to let the bus hit them? He says, they care about me enough, even though I reject the message, but they cared about me enough to run after me and push me away. So we have to understand it's, it's going to be painful. It's, it's going to be awkward. And this awkward may not be awesome. It can be involve a painful confrontation. And even then, don't expect them to respond immediately. This calls for patient endurance. Patient endurance. We have to be able to talk to them, to love them, to pray for them, to keep, keep talking to them. Even when they've gone astray, even when uh, a person who has avoided, felt, I mean, might even be on discipline and been removed from the church body. And, and when you do see them, you, you continue to call them to repentance. You continue to love them and you continue to pray for them. Some people say, well, I talked to them, they didn't respond, I'm done. No, we continually to patiently pursue, just like God patiently pursues us. We patiently uh, endure. And that's how we go about it. And we and continue to pray for them, too. That's not one of the points up there, but that should be a given, that we continue to pray for them. Pray for them. Because really, ultimately, it's God that does the, is the one who grants them repentance. Matter of fact, we read this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 through 26. This is Paul writing to young Timothy, and he says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Again, gentleness. Notice the demeanor in which it occurs. A lot of us have problems with gentleness. God, perhaps, may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Because the reality is, 
Is that person in sin? Though they think they're, they're exerting, um, exerting their authority, their individuality, they're really in prison, and they don't even realize it. And it's like the story of a man who was fleeing the police. He was in a, he was in a car chase. Um, and he's, he finally, his car crash, he gets out of the car, he runs, he scales this wall, he jumps in and he thinks, I got freedom, they can't get to me. And what he did is he actually climbed the wall of a prison. He thought he was getting his freedom, and in actuality, he was sealing his own fate. And that's what many people do. They're like, hey, I'm free, look what I'm doing, I'm doing all this kind of stuff. And they've really been captured and deceived by the evil one to do his will. So we have to understand and comprehend that, um, take in that truth. Patient endurance. Now, why do we go through all this? What's the point? Why do we care so much? Why don't we just simply let them wander off? James reminds us what's at stake in verse 20. Look at verse 20 with me. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. See, James wants us to remember, what's it, what, remember why we do it. Why do we do this? What's at stake? See, we, why do we go through this pain to pursue the wayward? Isn't it easier to just let them go off to hell, especially if they've hurt us in the process? We don't. There's too much at stake. See, James tells us that by turning them back from their evil way, we'll save his soul from death. This is where we have to say we don't know the mind of God. And when I hear people say, well, they're elect or they're not elect, we don't know. We can only evaluate what we see in front of us. And God, in essence, tells us to go. If they have wandered, we're to go. And we leave that part up to him. We only can operate on what we understand. We understand from our perspective that they're going to hell. That they are, They're putting themselves on the precipice of despair and don't even realize it. Because they are facing the calamity and certainty of death. See, Jane, if we go back to Jude in the passage that we just read a few moments ago, we see that we're snatching them from the fire, the fires of judgment. Death awaits. I don't think we really truly understand how bad death is. We've neutered death today. Tried to make it not so bad, but death is our enemy. The sure sign that we have a disease called sin. And the way we escape death is through knowing and following Jesus. Now I want to focus on another passage that might bring some clarity or it could bring some confusion, but I think it's important, especially when I came across James and I was thinking of 1 John. But in 1 John chapter 5, we read this. If anyone sees his brother, again, sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, does that seem to be contradictory to James if we sit and think about it? At first glance, it does, but when we really get into what the meaning of 1 John is and what John is saying, they're not contradictory. In fact, they're actually in complete harmony. The sin not leading to death is sin for which forgiveness is possible. That's what he's saying. Uh, Because forgiveness is sought and God is willing to grant forgiveness. Death and eternal life are actual present spiritual states that one can live in as well as the ultimate actual destinies, hell and heaven. Sin that leads to death is probably sin that is unrepented of and the kind or nature that John has warned about through his letter. This resolute rejection of the true doctrine about Christ, chronic disobedience to God's commandments, and persistent lack of love for fellow believers are indications of a lack of saving faith, which will not be forgiven. 
See, John leaves the issue of whether to pray for that situation if it arises. It would be better in such cases for, to pray for repentance. And what he's saying there is that there are sins that lead to eternal destruction, and they are, in essence, living present state in that a death, and they're not willing to repent. And meaning that they're going to be given over to their sin, but you should pray for them to repent so they don't live in that spirit of death or not only have the ultimate reality of death and hell. There's so much at stake. I don't think we understand this any longer. Again, we've neutered death. We look at death and we talk about our loved one dying, and, and these are one of the dumb things that smart Christians believe, that, all, that all, everybody goes to heaven. Not everybody goes to heaven. Not everybody goes to heaven. The Bible is clear on that, that there's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus. Believing and trusting in Him. There's only one means by which we are saved. And then I hear people say, are you saying to me that these people who are well-meaning and that they follow different religions are not going to go to God and not going to go to heaven because they were devout? I'm not questioning their, dev- their, their devotion. What I'm questioning is their destination. Are you telling me then when you get on a plane that you can fly a plane different than the rules of aerodynamics? Or, 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 you know, I don't even know what to say because I'm not a follower. guy. Aeronautics? Is that the right term, my plane people? No. <laughs> Aerodynamics or whatever it is. Okay, but There are rules to fly a plane. You don't just go, hey, I'm going to fly the plane this way. There are rules. There are laws to that, right? I mean, imagine that. When you're, when you're, if you're a pilot and you're on board the plane and you strap in and the pilot goes, well, I'm going to just throw out the book of everything that I did and I'm going to fly on my own and I'm just going to get there. You'd be like, oh, let me off the plane. <laughs> That's what you do. Because there are certain rules you want them to follow, right? Because there are laws of, of nature that have to be followed. It's the same when it comes to, to faith in God and Christ. See, Satan wants to convolute it. Remember, just like we said, he sends many different distractions, copies, in order to distract us from the original. Because remember, he's an angel of light. He understands that better than anybody. And he masquerades as an angel of light, meaning he gives enough light to look like faith, but to distract people from seeing who Christ is. That's why we have to continue to give a reason for the hope that we have. Employ the methods and the, the tools that God has for us, which is the Word of God, which is the Spirit of God. These are the things that God has, which is praying to God and asking God to make a way and correct them. Because the calamity of death awaits and there's no coming back. There, there are no second chances. There's not, another, there's not a redo. You only live once. So it involves rescue from the calamity of death and from the consequences of future sin, too. Consequences of future sin, which is what James is talking about. Again, we go back to James chapter twenty, uh, chapter 5, verse 20. Let, them, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It saves them from committing future sins and suffering the consequences of them. Jonathan Edwards, perhaps the greatest theologian in American history, said that there will be people in eternity that are suffering that will beg, beg to have one sin removed from their punishment and their sentence because their suffering was so great and there will be no relief. I mean, let me give you a little tangible example. Uh, Several years ago at our Sugar Grove campus, we had a, uh, a man who decided to leave his family and uh, go off with another woman. And so uh, some of the men of the church went to him, pleaded with him, because he said, I'm done. I'm going to go off. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to enjoy the world. They came to him and reasoned with him. 
Because really, who, who was he hurting in the long run? He was hurting himself, yes. But who else was he hurting? His wife, his children. I mean, think about all the consequences of his action and how they were going to understand God and all these different things that were going to affect them. So we understand the consequences of sin that occur, that are destined to occur. There are consequences to sins. Just uh, sharing with some guys just the other day, of hearing how choice after choice within their life or the life of their parent that they didn't think had that big of an issue, I mean, didn't seem that big of a deal at the time, just like we're looking at the, the, the wood in my house when it was just off just a degree. As time grew, it got bigger and bigger and hurt more and more people. So the same is with us. When we continue on in our sins, that we're hurting not ourselves, but other people around us in our disobedient state. And we have to recognize that there are consequences. And so when we rescue that person, we're not just helping them, we're helping their spouse, their family, their job, their whole eternal future. That we're helping save them from the consequences of their sin. We have to go out to help those who are hurting who again have found themselves shipwrecked because of their disobedience, who have wandered from the path of truth. And it's something that we do humbly, patiently. We'll do it imperfectly. But we must make sure that as we go about it, we do it in love, depending on God, doing it with gentleness and respect, not in condemnation. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, but wants them to repent and turn to Him. And let's ask God to direct, direct us to the people that are shipwrecked, asking Him for the wisdom and insight to speak truth to them, so that they might turn back to Christ. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard truth, one that I know that I've failed at. So many people that you have prompted me to speak to and have been too afraid, uh, afraid of their responses, afraid of being rejected. Perhaps it's an idol of approval. And Lord, I've, I've wanted their approval and not wanted to have that type of confrontation or hurt. And Lord, I know that there are many just like me and yet you're calling us to step out in truth, to, to be your ambassador, to be that tangible expression of your presence, to show the depth of your love, to be Jesus to them. Though how imperfect we might be, Lord, we ask for wisdom, we ask for courage. Uh, Lord, may we depend on your spirit, and may you lead us to those people who have been shipwrecked that are just waiting for that person. Don't even realize it. They are oftentimes caught in the prison of their own uh, sin and choices. But may we come to them in a spirit of love, helping restore them and put them back on the pathway of truth so that they might avoid the calamity of death and the consequences of, of suffering for their sins, but it might be covered, uh, truly fall under the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and all of, of what his death entailed and enabled us to have in and through him. So Lord, please direct us, empower us, and use us for the glory of your name. Forgive us when we do sin, when we do fail, and we will fail. But Lord, give us encouragement and direct us. Help us to depend on you for everything you have done for us and you want to do in us. We thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' name.